Ladies and gentlemen, I have with me here Sam Rad, uh, an entrepreneur, uh, overall blockchain pioneer, and author of, in my opinion, soon to be a uh, bestseller on at least Amazon, uh, the book Bitcoin Pizza. So I wanted to uh, kick it over to her so she can introduce herself and tell her uh, what she's been up to. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. Um, what do you want me to share? I would love to hear about uh, your experience with blockchain, what got you into it, and then the journey up into uh, your your book release and share what that's all about. Yeah, I mean, it's been a wild ride what got me here. Um, I mean, I, in respect to how I got into crypto and blockchain, it's been... So I grew up um, kind of in a, a family of gamers. I have two younger brothers, cool. and that's what we did for fun. And so it's when I got more into tech, um, programming, things like that. And when I went to college, I didn't end up studying it. I was far more interested in studying people and like their behavior. And I was just like kind of like a weirdo that watched people. Um, <laughs> and so I, I, for my anthropology thesis, which was like one of the disciplines I studied, uh, I tried to convince the department to let me study like video games or social media and things because it was awesome. like kind of in this transition where people had mobile phones um or were bringing computers to class but it, it was still like very new right. uh, i'd say this was around 2009 and i ultimately convinced them to let me live in a virtual world called second life um from linden labs which is you know super way ahead of their time um, but yeah, it was kind of like the easiest way to convince an like an anthropology professor who was like, you've got to go study, you know, actual people and observe them. And I was like, these are like their avatars, it's kind of like they're people and they're living. Um, right. So, yeah, when I was doing that, I was running like a digital T-shirt shop and making some, you know, linen dollars and making some U.S. dollars and I became fascinated with it, like not just from the gaming world, but just the whole experience of, um, you know, that this other world. And that was around the time um, I became aware of uh, Bitcoin and just, you know, what was going on in that space. And honestly, I, I wish I had done something more and started a company yeah. or whatever, but I was kind of just like lurking around. Um, researching, trying things out as the, I, they became available, uh, you know, definitely more in terms of like, I want to use Bitcoin to do this thing, not like I'm going to hold on to this for 10 years, wish yeah. I had. Um, and, and yeah, and so there's the other side of me, I, I became an entrepreneur. So I started a company while I was in college around this time. Um, not, not in the crypto space, of course, but ultimately, mm -hmm. after that first company, I ended up living in Park City, Utah. Um, and surprisingly, I was just trying to get away from tech and live in the mountains and yeah. I'm a ski patroller. Um, but there were a lot of like Bitcoiners and, and people out there. I think it was the influence of um, Overstock.com accepting Bitcoin and Patrick Byrne. And so I, I kind of met some folks, um, built a product. It was a loyalty product. Um, and then ultimately co-founded a company called Chronicled in 2014, which, I mean, really we came together to explore, it was like an exploration of blockchain for yeah. non-financial use cases, which like 
I, at the time, didn't know if I believed that there were non-financial use cases. I still right. um, question that. Although, it, I mean, it's a, a massive area and the company has grown in that area of supply chain. Um, right. And I know it's definitely a point of contention um, amongst our community. So I guess where the book came from, I don't know. I mean, on one hand, I've been doing these things in emerging technologies, but for specifically crypto and blockchain for so long where like people don't know what I do for a job. They like haven't. Now they finally yeah. do. They're like, oh, I heard about it. How do I buy Bitcoin? But like it wasn't like that. My parents are like, it's this like weird internet money stuff. Or is it yeah. illegal? Is like Sam a drug dealer? <laughs> like, I don't know. Right. Um, so, you know, I realized as on as on one hand, while it's really amazing that like we're talking about this more and more in mainstream media. Mm -hmm. um, there was still like a gap, an information gap in terms of like high level, fun, digestible uh, information about like why this is important and not just like the technology and how it works and what sorts of things we can do with it, but more on the level of, you know, what were the, the social and cultural and political and economic contexts that like led to this? like pre 2008, you know, financial crisis. Yeah. And, and why is this transformation so big um, on that socio-cultural level? And so that's kind of why I wrote the book. Um, it started as a half joke. I like it. I had made this like crypto glossary. So mm -hmm. like explaining terms like Bitcoin pizza or to the moon or Lambos, like the significance of these, um, I don't know, cultural myths or like terms that we use yeah. um, just to like lame to people. Cause it was like, I think there was a conference in New York. It was like consensus or blockchain week. And there were, you could hear the sound of just like Lamborghinis all around New York city. It was like so loud. Insane. And people are like, yeah, why, what is the significance or like, why are these things here? And so I really just wanted to, you know, explain these things. That's awesome. Yeah. And and I really I really respect the the direction that you came from to get to crypto and blockchain, etc. You know, there are a lot of folks that have different stories about why they were even interested in it in the first place. You know, for me, I was just the weirdo who had no absolutely no no clue what I wanted to do with my life at all. Mm -hmm. I had too many interests and I couldn't find anything that satisfied my curiosity in all these different things. And then I read the Satoshi white paper on Stumble Upon. And I'm like, this has a lot of like economics, you know, yeah. study of human beings and psychology and tech. This is awesome. And then I stuck with it, you know, but then to your point, you know, anthropology, how people react to things and how people in history have done things. Really interesting. Thinking yeah. about blockchain. Crazy. And crypto. I, so I originally started in neuroscience um, and then was like, I don't know, this is, I don't want to go become a surgeon, yeah. like a neurosurgeon. And I didn't think I would ever use like the anthropo like this perspective, this way of thinking that is unique, not unique to me, but it's just like how I see the world. Mm -hmm. And finally, like this space, I see like, you know, uh, companies that have calls or like actually have roles that are like anthropologists in residence. And that's really cool. Crypto companies. I'm like, yes, finally, um, you know, it, there is 
equal necessity for the technical engineering as well as the social engineering. And it's almost a bigger mm -hmm. challenge to align. I mean, it's the biggest challenge to align incentives on, you know, a multi-party network. So, you know, Agreed. I really like that aspect. Yeah. And I, and I find that a lot of times in the space, we have a lot of people that, you know, are, are striving for and preaching the goal of, you know, as close to or complete decentralization, right? But there's no thought given to how in the absence of an authority and in the absence of any centralization, how are you going to know how people are going to react and use the product that you create? Uh, you know, for, as an engineer, that's what keeps me up at night is I've <laughs> tried to make this as airtight as possible, but I know that somebody's going to find the hole. And how do we dissuade people and kind of point them away from doing that? And, yeah. and that's the challenge. Yeah. Or encourage them to find the hole and make a better system um, and taking cues from open source. Like, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think Bitcoin, the, the Bitcoin network is doing a pretty good job of it, of keeping yeah. it super simple. I think in some of the other products, and that's where I find it challenging with more of the, the blockchain side of things. Um, some of these things are incredibly complicated. Like I was exploring ideas around, uh, like cooperative government governance and resource management and just like kind of fun experimental communities. And right. it's like, whoa. Um, yeah, there's a lot going on. Yeah. That's really cool. And so, you know, in your experience or in your opinion, when you look at a project that's using that hot topic, right, that blockchain word or the cryptocurrency word, you know, to you personally, how do you go and evaluate that from a value perspective? You know, what what are you looking at in their, you know, if it's not their white paper, even their their marketing to say, hey, there might be a use case here? I mean, if I go back to, I, I have like a product background or that's like how I tend to build things and it, mm -hmm. it's super simplistic. It might be simplistic, but, um, you know, is it, is there demand? Is it solving a problem, like a real problem? And I think right. one, particularly in 2017, when we saw like the rush of white papers and ICOs, and it was pretty much like every idea imaginable that exists, <laughs> like let's put a Snickers bar on a blockchain. Boom. Like literally these, some of these things uh, made no sense. Other things were incredibly creative, but like could not ever exist or are at least 10 years away from existing for a number of factors. So for me, totally. Um, I, I appreciated that because you could see kind of a window into potential futures. Um, but when I'm evaluating something uh, for other reasons of like, I don't know, in respect to viability of a project, um, I think it's just going back to one, is it solving a problem or a need and that's where again after full circle of doing all these explorations and on the blockchain not bitcoin side um mm -hmm. I, I i think fixing or improving money is a massive like that alone is a really big concept like it's yeah, a massive huge. concept so i think I'm excited to see the kind of movement back there and, and energy being uh, put into building the infrastructure and tools and seamless experiences. Uh, you know, today I sent 
an invoice uh, for, you know, Bitcoin to sell for, for my book. And it was like integrated with QuickBooks. And I was like, damn, like this yeah. is getting infrastructure. Yeah, <laughs> good. I can actually like run a business on this without doing a million different things. So, um, you know, those tools alone excite me. And then, you know, again, I think there are a lot of exciting other uh, more creative or wacky projects as well. And um, I, mean, I mean, I talk about some of them in the book. So it's I kind of talk about both things. Awesome. Yeah. And I think it's funny because so many people, I think it's just human beings in general, they find something they're passionate about. And then that becomes the only thing that they can conceptually wrap their head around for a while. And so you'll see like people who are really into Bitcoin and, and are really bullish on the value or bullish on the project or the mission. It's all Bitcoin, not blockchain. Everything else is dreadful and terrible. And then you have people who are immediately threatened by Bitcoin saying it's it's not Bitcoin, it's blockchain. That's the powerful thing. And I just, I find it funny to watch people go back and forth in the news about it, like as if we already know the answer to all the questions that there will be. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. And I had a conversation the other day that was fascinating. It seems like a lot of, and I spent a lot of time with the blockchainers when I was in my enterprise blockchain days. And yeah. it actually seems like a lot of those people are like closet Bitcoiners. Um, totally. They just can't, you know, because of their large corporations that are doing their like blockchain pilots to do whatever it is um, that they'll never end up doing. Uh, you know, it's too risky of a thing for some of these corporations to like endorse publicly. Um, Bitcoin, but they are right. getting involved. So, and I think again, I, I, it's a learning experience for all of us. A totally great point. No one knows. I don't think anyone like knows where this yeah. is going. Knowing the answers, we're all working and building and learning together. Um, I do feel like I've gone. I've like opened Pandora's box like a little bit for myself. Like as soon as I learned, and maybe you feel this way, but as soon as like. I became aware of this community and kept learning more and more and then started questioning things like the nature of like, what is money? Yeah. What is, why do we have govern governments? Why, what is a nation state at this point in time? Um, you really start to question the nature of, you know, our constructed reality. And these are big, hard questions, the kinds of questions I like. But I like honestly could never go back. Like I'm like trapped in this our new world Damn. where it's like, oh, wow, there's still people who um, aren't so obsessed with, you know, the crypto community. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's why it's cool to have books like yours that are out there that are they started as a glossary, which I think is powerful in and of itself. But then talk about the story really, truly as a human being, of like what this all means and, and why it's important. I think those things are even more valuable than, you know, people talking about the price of Bitcoin or people talking about where Bitcoin is going to go in in 20 years from a financial perspective, when a lot of people are still wondering what it is, why it matters and what the technology is in the first place. Um, so I think those are really important places to start for a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, again, I'm nothing against speculating and getting excited about Purely, um, yeah. the the prices or tools or projects. Um, but yeah, I think having a grounding in 
an understanding on why people are so excited and working on these things mm. is also important. Um, and also, I, or just like, even if people read this book and they say like, I still think this is a scam and I hate this, great. Then at least you have a little more information to make that opinion or base yeah. that opinion on. Um, but I think my biggest pet peeve are just kind of unsupported, strong opinions. And there seemed to be a lot of that, particularly <laughs> in the media or amongst people like even, um, you know, my my dad at first when I was you know telling him about he's like conservative dude, pretty risk averse and it was like, eh, yeah. it was like a volatile asset. I'm like, no, you, you're not really understanding it. So. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a whole new paradigm for people. Mm -hmm. You know, like I, um, I have to dig up the footage. I would love to post it still, but there's a video that I took of of me trying to explain <laughs> Bitcoin and what it is to my girlfriend's grandfather, who's in his you know in his 80s, and he's basically saying like, I get that it could be really valuable and it's super powerful, but I'm too old to figure all this stuff out. I like American money. I'm cool with that. And I can I can barely keep up with all the stuff that's happening with that. So I'm not going to touch it. But at least from that perspective, people are aware that it's out there. And if they say, hey, I'm still just, I get it, but I'm still just not interested in it. That's totally cool. Yeah. So I, I mean, totally, totally get you. Again, I, so on the blockchain side, I do a lot of like future talk, public speaking. Mm -hmm. um, and not like in a way I, none of us can predict the future. We're not fortune tellers, but I try to imagine things both in a utopian and dystopian way. I think it's important to do that. Um, and I was talking mainly to the entire manufacturing industry of Thailand. So it's, you know, a, a big area of their GDP. Mm -hmm. And it was about like how not necessarily, um, and this is also a chapter in the book. It's like, I, I like to look both on like, from the literal perspective of what this tech is, but also more like the abstract perspective around like, what does the value or paradigm shift from centralized to decentralized just in general mm -hmm. um, systems or ways of organizing mean. So for them, the example is like, right now your the way you conceptualize your business is you own a building, a, you know, a factory manufacturing plant, it has your machines, you produce stuff, it goes to a distributor, you know, and, and that's how you think of things. In the future, right. you might own, you know, a fraction of a fleet of 3D printers that are globally distributed and running on a network and receiving payments. Um, and same thing for like people owning fleets of autonomous vehicles or, uh, you know, trucks or whatever it might be. And so for them, they're initially scared. They're coming to me like, Hey, all of our business, our margins are getting smaller. Our business are shutting down. There are all these questions around like future of work and uh, will automation replace jobs, which like, yes, it will. Yeah. Um, but there is also an optimism of like, if you, if you can embrace this paradigm shift and learn to think differently that like your business might fundamentally do something, the same thing, but in a different way, um, and the business model might be slightly different, then they got excited about it and started to like understand more about, again, like why the technology or the values that underpin the technology is important to them. So yeah, I mean, 
again, they're like big questions and big shit. Yeah. And like, even if you're talking about just like money, that's big enough. Um, but it's something that I, I do believe will impact every industry from, you know, what we produce and what we consume and the flow of data and what we know and, you know, access to information. It's like, it's, um, you know, incredibly important. Yeah, totally. And, and I think only just now is the concept of what technology is doing both positively and potentially negatively means for us, like as a society and not just one individual country, but globally, what does it actually mean about how we're all going to change the way we work with each other? Um, you know, to your point about manufacturing, that's one of the first places that people talk about because of automation, where, where are you going and how can we plan for that? to be prepared to also use the same technology to help us still capture value, make a shift. That's super cool. Super cool. Yeah. So shifting focus back to your book again, for me, um, I'm like halfway through it now, which I've been, I really enjoyed it. I'm curious just from your perspective, why Bitcoin pizza is the title. I think it's awesome. I'm just curious to hear the story. Yeah, I, I mean, who doesn't like pizza? First of all, I mean, um, no, I mean, so something that I think is so important to any community, whether you're talking about like a political group or a nation state or a company is the origin story. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, in in our space, we have, you know, Satoshi, like him or her or their selves um, as like kind of the primary origin story. And then we have these other, again, like, culturally significant myths, I would say. Um, yep. So again, like Lambos or to the moon or HODL or these things. And Bitcoin Pizza, um, the story of Laszlo Hanez and, you know, buying two Papa John's pizzas for 10,000 Bitcoin, it kind of captured mainstream awareness. It might not have been one of like the first story, but it, mm -hmm. I mean, when the price of Bitcoin went really high in like the, then people were like actually talking about it in mainstream media, writing about it, being like, Oh, this dude would have been like, a, you know, yeah. many hundred millionaire. Um, yeah. I just, I think the story is an important one and was just a culturally significant moment. And there's like a holiday now. So what better title? Um, and Agreed. again, it was like pizza. I was like, I, it was already how I was thinking about the glossary or was like telling some of these stories. And so there wasn't a title and it was actually like before the book was even written, like I mm -hmm. had the title, it was like, this is it. And it was like a joking working title. Yeah. Um, same thing with like the no bullshit guide to blockchain. Like I, then I kind of got a little scared. I was like, is this too vulgar? Um, and I've had situations like where I give a keynote and then like the person is like author of, Bitcoin pizza, and then they don't read the no BS guide to blockchain. Um, yeah, but you know, I just went for it. So why not? Yeah. <laughs> no, that's, that's awesome. Because the reality is, is that the stories are what make Bitcoin itself so interesting. I think the one of the coolest things to me originally was that we have this amazing piece of technology, but also like game theory case study in a way that has absolutely no method of attribution. Like we can't go and say, hey, look, figurehead, let's give you a Nobel Peace Prize. You know, yeah. look, let's 
give you a commendation on Time Magazine. There is no one or no group to attribute it to. Mm -hmm. And I think I, I may be totally off on this, but just thinking about it from my life experience, I don't remember there being something like this where there's tech or something that happens where there's just purely no attribution whatsoever. Yeah. Offhand. I mean, I, there is, I mean, I guess the constructed figurehead, it feels almost like a religion almost yeah. like, True. you know, these figures, whether they were real people or they're kind of just myths or combination of stories. I don't know. I don't want to get into that because it's probably a polarizing thing to talk about, but like, totally. uh, you know, it, it feels similar to that to me. Yeah, I would agree with that. It is very similar. And, and especially because if you really look at it from a literal analogy, people take that Bitcoin white paper as a religious person would take a, a holy script, right? Mm -hmm. It's like that is the guiding light for what this protocol is going to be and yeah. what it always will be. Yeah. And then we see all the forks and like all these different yeah. actions. For, so I actually wanted, I couldn't put these things, uh, graphics in the book because of IP and, and copyright stuff but like i'm going to put it on my website of like all of the amazing graphics and memes and uh resources that are available but i think there was um it was i forget who wrote it in a medium post but there was a comparison either i drew this comparison or they drew the comparison i can't remember but there was like a great graphic of like the tree of religions over time and then like yeah. a graphic that was like bitcoin forks and it's just like it, it kind of has moved in it looks very similar um, in terms yeah. of the evolution. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there are these various interpretations of like the sacred text that have led to these different branches. And it's it's really cool to be experiencing it in like real time, like to be alive for this. And also, totally. I mean, it's not over the course of thousands of years um, that the evolution is happening. It's like over the course of 10 years so far. And we've already seen... Uh, so much divergence and convergence and uh, debates and all all sorts of things. Yeah, no, it's truly fascinating, you know, and I, it is a polarizing topic, but just because it's obligatory, I have to ask, what are your thoughts about the general, the general direction of the forks? You know, there's obviously been tons of drama. Yeah. And then as a new person <laughs> coming in, you look at that and you're like, all right, I'm interested today. I'm going to learn what Bitcoin is. You try and there are three of them. And then you're, I don't know what's going on. And then everyone on Twitter is yelling at each other about it. I'm sure I would just be like, peace. Yeah. I'm done. <laughs> I tried to, again, like very briefly. I mean, I'm at the level of needing to define what a fork is to people. Like that was the level of the gloss. Yeah. Like, what does that even mean? And then sure. the next level is like, okay, what are the nuanced, like the implications of, you know, Bitcoin versus Bitcoin cash? And like, I didn't go that deep. Um, I think it's my goal would be to like give enough information to feel like, you know, what to Google and research yeah. and draw your own conclusions. Uh, I tried to stay as unbiased as possible, although I do have opinions on like certain yeah. groups or individuals that have made certain claims. I mean, I, I don't know, like it, as you have a right to do. Yeah. You know? And, um, you know, I think the best will win ultimately that's usually how you know markets will correct for that and so right you know if projects are not necessarily staying 
forget even true to the vision, because that's we've already gone far past that. I mean, there's the even the notion of like, is sufficient decentralization enough, let alone like complete decentral, like we're having so many nuanced yeah. debates. Um, and I think ultimately, the the right things for the right uses will um, persist. And the, the things that, you know, kind of got it right, but not fully, like won't persist. And that's the way that traditionally, like, you know, we've seen evolution or the evolution of like tech products or companies. So. Totally. Definitely. So, and I think that's a good segue into like tech companies. You know, it's very interesting to watch tech companies and their, their figureheads start to sort of step in the ring and get their feet wet a little bit. As we know, Jack Dorsey, the the OG behind Twitter, yeah. he's very big into Bitcoin. He's amassing a team to work on Bitcoin and to provide products that make the UX a little better for people. Um, and then you obviously have Facebook that stepped into the ring with cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on the role of big tech in the evolution of crypto and blockchain? I mean, I think, one, they're it's integral to the development. So you could even look at big tech, we could go farther back and say, you know, half of the reason that we're able to collaborate and work together on these tools are existing, you know, the existing infrastructure of the internet or communications tools um, provided by, you know, various companies or uh, GitHub or Reddit or open source, you know, where these communities congregated or forums. so it's so important. I think there are some like so naturally most of the crypto world is on crypto Twitter and we spend our yep. time there. Um, and I think the values of Twitter seem maybe a little bit more aligned with the some of the values, um, you know, of the crypto space. Uh, and yeah, Jack Dorsey's approach or Twitter's approach. Um, has been more of kind of providing an on-ramp to, uh, you know, Bitcoin through the Cash App. It's great. Yep. It feels a little bit more like uh, to the core of like Bitcoin Maximus. Like it's easier to support. This like Facebook mm-hmm. Libra thing is a little bit easier to um, disagree with. Um, yeah. From the perspective of like creating a permissioned network or consortium of large companies that are node operators and like privileged members on on this network it, it's kind of you know goes against a lot of the the fundamental values but it's they're not the only ones and again on the enterprise blockchain space that's kind of what's happening um even my company chronicled moved in that direction in the pharmaceutical industry where you have these like big players as node right. operators and then you think about it and you're like what is that is that sufficiently decentralized is that missing the point um then again so i i'm giving a talk in brazil in september and i started speaking to people like on the ground to like get more information because the topics on open banking and financial inclusion and i'm a little um like i wanted to become more informed and i asked the question like what do you think about facebook or or libra and Honestly, most of the people were like, we're so excited about it. We think this will be a really big thing for us. But the other side of um, the coin is that we need to get more 
like cell phones in people's hands. Like that's the other, Interesting. Um, we need that infrastructure, but like, you know, it's he- here in the United States, maybe there are, it's a more extreme debate and it was refreshing to hear different perspectives based on, um, you know, where people were located or what sorts of things they valued. So to them, they're like, yeah, we, we definitely trust these players and big companies, um, mm-hmm a lot more than our current government. So, Interesting. you know, yeah. Um, so yeah. coming from the US, you know, in a privileged position with the US dollar and kind of its weight, um, maybe there's more of like a privilege to, to like hate on that project. Um, whereas, you know, people, so the people I was t- speaking to were ref- uh, Venezuelan refugees on the border of Brazil. And so it's like a totally different dynamic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a night, a night and day difference between someone that's in the U.S. that makes a comfortable wage, and your your dollar is relatively safe in terms of its its value, mm-hmm. and then someone who is quite literally a refugee in every sense of the word, um, and their approach to technology like this and companies that may offer it. That's definitely true. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So, I mean, then if you take that topic a step further and you talk about blockchain and really even specifically Bitcoin's impact in places like Venezuela and places even in parts of Africa, some places in Southeast Asia that have issues with corrupt governments, that have issues with overall lack of basic financial services. Do you think that these technologies have a part to play in that in the resurgence of those places? Yeah, I think it'll probably be where the first in the the biggest waves of adoption are because it, it moves into a very obvious, again, necessity. It's like, there's a problem and it's an obvious solution versus, you know, it's a solution looking for a problem to fill. And then it ends up like for gamblers and speculators, like it's, um, especially also there's like this optimism in a lot of uh, developing countries of like, again, we're able to um, kind of leapfrog and learn from the mistakes of other countries, countries like America, which you could argue have become corrupt and kind of messed up in its own right, but far too large and complicated to fix. Um, So other conversations beyond just, um, you know, financial security um, have been even like voting system. So like, there's no way in hell that we're in the US going to roll you know, a blockchain based uh, voting system anytime soon, but in smaller countries or countries where, you know, the infrastructure isn't as, you know, formalized or that it's been already like changed so many times, I think they're uh, more open to implementing systems like this. So I absolutely think it'll make a huge impact. They'll, you know, countries will, other countries will lead the way. and I think yeah. we'll eventually catch up. Yeah, I'm actually super excited for that. I'm I'm in total agreement. I think that even just from an engineering perspective, replace like ripping and replacing all the infrastructure, like taking even the human aspect out of it in the U.S. from a financial perspective, even like basic infrastructure for the internet is a huge ordeal. And in a place where there isn't a lot of infrastructure already, it's easy to just build stuff up from from scratch than it is to rip and replace. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, that, I 
that's another area that's like the, my biggest source of frustration um, coming from the enterprise supply chain space of like these buzzwords of digital transformation and yeah. the idea of retrofitting existing systems um, versus building new systems. I mean, the idea of building new systems from scratch is just like a sexy concept for anyone. Probably totally. an engineer is way more fun um, than going in and like patching things up, you know, and continuing to make yeah. this mess of infrastructure. So, um, yeah, I think those opportunities are really exciting. Totally. Well, I always find it funny, too, that you look at a lot of like enterprise tech in general. The approach is always to make things sound more cool, but also more confusing. Mm-hmm. I think then the marketing then gets in the way of, of sales in a way, because cloud, for example, is a big one that I think is is hilarious because it was blown into this huge, innovative, new thing. Whereas the reality is, is it was you take the computers you have inside your building and you put them somewhere else and then you can still use them and you don't have to own it or deal with the maintenance, right? Right. If it, w- it wasn't pitched that way, it was pitched as this whole thing. It was like the the religion of cloud. It's like the myth and the legend of cloud computing. Where is your computer? No one knows. Yeah. (laughs) And then people are so confused. You know, imagine being like a 50 year veteran at a company who's trying to make this decision and you have no clue what this means. You may have made, you may have said yes, if you knew that it was that, that straightforward. No, I mean, I sold, I, in my past life, I I helped evangelize and sell cloud services for a, a large well-known company that does that. And um, again, it was such a ridiculous concept of like one half of these people. Yeah. It's also like on-prem and they're like, it's super secure data centers. The idea of like, because it was pitched as this like mythical thing, then they're even more like timid about it. They're like, wait, no way. Like who has our data is controlling this, maintaining it versus like, yeah, it could have been pitched um, better. And I'm seeing it's the same it's the same companies that are like pitching blockchain as a service now um, that were pitching, you know, the cloud services. And, and that's like, that's also kind of ridiculous to me because they're still pitching it to the same people who haven't even made that first step to, yeah. you know, of digital transformation or into cloud services. So I don't know how you're going to get people to go from like on-prem to blockchain. It, it seems equally as crazy, but totally, you know, and I've, I've seen people, um, and for anyone not familiar with the terminology, on-premises is basically someone who has servers that deal with all their IT inside their own buildings, and they take care of it. They have people that work on these servers and maintain them. Cloud is your computers are somewhere else in a data center that's also well-protected, just not in your ownership. Um, but I've seen people pitch blockchain, you know, at, even at conferences, I've heard people say, like, we have a blockchain solution that is made for on-prem. Like if you want to do everything on-prem, go for it. And it's it's a cool idea because it gets people excited if they're only into on-prem, but it doesn't solve the base problem that people aren't ready to even let go of their computers, let alone let go of control of their data 100%. Yeah, so I mean, that's exactly what we, we found in my previous company. Um, in the pharma industry. So we Mm -hmm. launched a network called the Metal Edger Network. And I mean, rolling that out, it was like a two year process of, you know, actually, um, you know, installing uh, 
their nodes on prem. It was just like, yeah. you know, kind of a crazy concept. It, I'm still surprised it worked. Um, it is working. <laughs> it's like, because to me, I was like, I was coming from this maybe um, uh, different perspective of, I don't know, like I've built like SaaS software and make things like one click super easy in these companies. Yep. Like, hell no. Um, so it, it's definitely interesting to see like the full gamut of approaches. Totally. Yeah. And, and it's cool because now we're seeing how important it is, not just for engineers to be involved from a blockchain perspective and cryptocurrency, having people that know how to come in and explain in a not terrifying way of what this technology means and, in, and not selling with fear, but instead selling with value, like saying, it's not that this is going to destroy your business immediately tomorrow but this is something that could be valuable to you if you jump on and you start testing and playing now. Yeah. And it's, I mean, to build on that point, I think it, the way I think about it is, so there's like the fear-based mindset, which comes from this notion of scarcity. And then mm -hmm. there's like an abundance mindset of, which is like to make that shift and not just in terms of like, you know, technology or economics, but just like in, in life, that's a hard, a very difficult shift to make. Um, and people spend their whole lives like never getting there. And so to, to expect to bring an entire organization or company or country into a mindset that basically says, if we open our systems or, you know, our data and that becomes commoditized to a point that, you know, that's no longer your business model or keeping these like data silos and, you know, yeah. you know, making money on advertising to shift and say like, oh no, trust me. Like if you just open it, <laughs> business models and things on top of it will be far more uh, powerful. It'll unlock incredible amounts of value. But like to get to that point in your mind, especially when we've, we've been like conditioned, I think um, globally in terms of a scarcity mindset, it's like kind of the basics of yeah. supply and demand. It's, it's a really, I mean, it can seem really out there. Um, I, I agree. I'm sure people think I'm like a cuckoo person when I speak on stage about this stuff. But. <laughs> <laughs> hey, what can you do? Yeah. No, and then you also have on the other side where the media, I think, has a big part to play in that approach to this technology because you will see that because of the culture of media, especially in really developed countries, is you've got to get clicks and you have to get attention. Yeah. Even at the expense of not telling the whole truth, right? We all know that that happens. So we've seen a lot of news about, oh, well, you know, when Bitcoin was hacked, right? In reality, Bitcoin in and of itself yeah. hasn't really been hacked. People made solutions that tap into Bitcoin or that use Bitcoin that have been hacked. And that's yeah. a very different story. But those stories then take weight and take hold in organizations and in governments that say, hey, this technology isn't even proven. Like what you guys are promising isn't in reality because we saw on, you know, this news outlet that Bitcoin was hacked recently. Mm -hmm. How much, I mean, in your opinion, do you think that that's part of it or no? The media's role? Yeah. yeah I, I mean, I've participated because I write and I've also participated. So I've been on two sides of the media when I was Interesting, yeah. with um, my company. I ended up, you know, 
moving from running our product organization to hiring people there and spent more time on the, the ecosystem building side. So mm -hmm. um, communications, marketing, whatever. And so from that perspective, like of being like a service provider or company and like learning how to pitch things, but then on the flip side, you know, writing as a contributor to various publications and actually seeing one, receiving people's pitches all the time, but also like knowing exactly what sorts of things um, are accepted as headlines or, or topics. Um, yep. Unfortunately, I mean, I, I don't point fingers anywhere, though, because like, I can understand how that industry got to where it is. And the business models that support it um, are kind of flawed, or I guess, yeah, do not. Um, right. So yeah, I think that is a huge part in a lot of things beyond just even crypto and, and blockchain in this space of, you know, people's access to unbiased or, you know, fact-based information. Um, I agree. And again, that's like, I'm not claiming, I'm a hum human. So like the book obviously has bias. Um, and yeah. to be honest, my opinions, it was about a two-year project, maybe uh, a little shorter, maybe a year and a half. But like in our space, that's like a lifetime, first really and foremost, to like, by the time I finished it, again, you learn more, your thoughts evolve. So there's maybe certain things that um, I no longer believe, but I tried to leave opinions out of it um, and tried my best to just tell like an unbiased story of like here, there are people who are Bitcoin maximalists. There are blo enterprise blockchain people who talk about like permissioned or even private networks. And is that a blockchain? In, right. You know, so... <sighs> I don't know. Um, I do hope that, you know, we have more unbiased, as you know, or just in information, education, uh, wherever right. that can come from, or just, yeah, conversations like this and podcasts where people can form their own opinions and do their own research. But, um, you know, the goal for the book, again, was to reach like a mainstream audience in the way that the mass media does. So like the audience was literally like people who have seen or heard about it on CNBC, like that yeah. was kind of the target audience of like, oh, you've like seen it on TV maybe once or twice. Um, and beyond that, you don't really know. And hopefully yeah, it, trying to rectify some of the damage done. Totally. And it's hard to know where to start. And it's and once even once you get started, it's hard to know what's opinion and what is um you know, fact, but also sort of pushed out, particularly for self-interest. Um, it, it's difficult to do that. It's difficult to parse through all that stuff and figure out what it, what there is out there to uh, to trust. Well, certainly, and it's. I mean, that's even the concept of history itself in writing history. I think often we we um, forget that many things we take for granted. Uh, such as history or money are social constructs. They were written and created by people at some mm -hmm. point in time. Um, so if anything, you know, the space or Satoshi's white paper reminds us that, you know, again, money is a construction. It can be changed. It can be made better. Same thing with history. Like I'm very aware of the fact that by writing something down on, you know, in a I mean, I guess it can be changed. Anything can be changed, but like by writing, yeah. it carries a little bit more weight. Um, and it made me 
honestly kind of nervous to do it because it's like, oh, I, I can't talk about everything. I can't explain every nuance. And what if I yeah. missed this point, which I know I did. And, and then people get the wrong idea and I've like messed something up. So it's, you know, we all, we're all playing a very important role in telling um, these, the stories. Of- yeah, I totally hear that. I, I mean, I get super nervous every time I, I post a video. I'm like, well, I did a lot of research for this, but what if I mess something up? Like, it, am I going to be contributing to the problem of misinformation here? Unintentionally, but still misinformation. And I think, you know, it plays into like just people in general. Like everyone has the human nature aspect of you miss stuff or you, you know, lace in your opinion, even though you didn't intend to, because that's just who we are. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like, that's totally spot on. Yeah. And, you know, especially when imposter syndrome starts playing games, too. And you say, I've, you know, I've devoted a mere nine, 10 years of my life to this. But even still, I still worry that I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this correctly. I literally, I mean, I have no idea. And that's what keeps me on my toes is that, I mean, I'm I'm a student. There are plenty of things. I just love learning. They're like, Honestly, I'm not an expert in anything. I, do, I don't like that term or people using it as like the first of like, oh, no way. But like, Ooh. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely come from my own perspective, which is like the sociocultural side of things. It's not from, you know, the cryptography or economics or, or game theory side, but mm-hmm. I appreciate it. I continue to learn about it. Um, it's, you know, so I don't I like the diversity of the space. Yeah, that's, that's for sure. I think that's one of the things that really is a draw for people is that there are so many different practices and different studies that are approaches that you can take to it. If you're an economics person, this is a huge undertaking and a huge like case study of how things can change over time mm-hmm. and how economic theories play out in reality. Um, you know, in anthropology, in game theory practice and cryptography there's all sorts of things that are being tested and playing out in front of us that like to your point that you you made earlier it's a blessing that we get to see it in such a compressed timeline and we're not reading about it 50 years from now yeah totally definitely so i know we're coming up close to an hour now but i wanted to ask you two quick questions at the end uh the first would be <laughs> if you could point to one particular thing and it can be very small in scope or very large in scope that like basically what is the number one value prop to you that we'll see for blockchain and cryptocurrency in the world like of all of them what are you most stoked about i don't i mean this might be a little poofy but i mean honestly i just i think financial inclusion is a and not just on the level of you know access but access to education information all you know empowerment um mm-hmm. and the the tools required uh, is incredibly powerful and especially when we're living in a world where things like borders on a map and nation states have already been surpassed by large corporates like facebook that are bigger than any nation state. And so to think, I've mm-hmm. always wondered what comes next, like what's on top of kind of the co- corporate overlords of the nation states, like, how do we keep going up, 
um, this ladder. And I've tried to define it as like kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but like Sam's hierarchy of financial inclusion of like, yeah. what is what is like that top like self actualization, but in terms of financial inclusion, and I think that's where we're going. Um, I can't tell you what it is, maybe I'll try to like, I'm trying to, to make the levels, but uh, I think, you know, unlocking this value, um, potentially, you know, I won't go so far as to say utopian and whatever, I'm a, I'm a pragmatist, but Right. On a level where we see significant and powerful change in the way that we organize, um, in particularly on like the the uh, financial inclusion side, is is really big and exciting to me. That's awesome. Yeah. No. Likewise, and definitely book number two, or even just uh, like an infographic series with the uh, Sam's hierarchy would be pretty sweet. <laughs> It'll be I buy it. glossary. I'll add it to there. But uh, yeah, that was weird. I'm. It's on my mind because I've been invited, and I'm so excited to do this talk on financial inclusion. Which again, it's mm-hmm. like I usually do these overview, like what is decentralization and what does it mean, and so this is kind of a new area of focus and in thinking through fun ways to describe it, um, that came up. And so it's a pretty new concept, but I'll develop it. Nice. Keep me posted. Yeah. And then, and then finally, um, I'm trying to ask everyone this to the best of my abilities, but what are your top two places that you like to go to read informational stuff or just opinion on this topic, blockchain, cryptocurrency, et cetera, where are your spots? Um, so first and foremost, I, and it might not be the best for newcomers, but also it might be the best is Twitter. Um, I, one, I prefer primary sources for anything. So it's honestly like where I've met, I've, I've met so many people over the years, literally that I know digitally and never meet or sometimes meet in real life. Yeah. Um, it's where people you can understand kind of where they're coming from or their opinions, they'll share medium articles. And so the second place I'd say is probably well, not necessarily medium anymore, um, with the paywalls, um, but you know, personal blogs or any sort of company blogs. Um, I am still figuring out how I feel about the various publications in the space. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I follow all of them too. So cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's just good for people to get an understanding of where people that work in the space are getting their info or trying to get info. And maybe that will help people find what they're looking for a little bit easier. Um, so with that, where can people find you? Uh, can they follow you on Twitter? What's your handle, et cetera? They can. I, so it's the same handle across social media networks, but I'm primarily hanging out and chatting on Twitter. It's Sam Rad official. Uh, so you can find me there. I'm pretty friendly. Oh, also we should talk about this. So if this comes out before the book launch, which is August, August 20th, I'm having a pizza party on Twitter. And so I've partnered with some amazing companies in the space to airdrop, um, pizzas at various Domino's locations around the country in the United States. So if you live in the U S and want to join, or we'll try to do it internationally. I'm still figuring that out, but join logistics, the party. you know. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I will I will be tweeting this out as well. I have a, like an invitation that Sam was nice enough to send to me physically, um, and I'll I'll tweet that out so you guys can get all the information. Um, but thank you very much, Sam, for coming and spending time sharing your wisdom, insights, etc. Please do, guys, give her a follow, especially on good old crypto Twitter. Great, thank you for having me. Awesome, absolutely, guys. Have a great one. Cheers. Thank you.